Hello everyone, I'm your host Luke. Um, I apologize that this is a day late, but um, yeah, it's been a it's been a fine couple of weeks, right? With the uh, gas prices, <coughs> um, people are uh, I don't know. It's. <laughs> It's a little rough right now. But anyways, so what what are we covering today? Um, We're talking about the Great Chicago Fire, also known as the Chicago Fire of 1871, which burned for a whopping three days from October 8th to October 10th, 1871. Destroyed thousands of buildings, killed an estimated 300 people, caused an estimated $200 million in damage. Um... So, in October 1871, dry weather and abundance of wooden buildings, streets, and sidewalks made Chicago vulnerable to fire. The Great Chicago Fire began on the night of October 8th, in or around a barn located on the property of Patrick and Catherine O'Leary at 137 DeCoven Street on the city's southwest side. Legend holds that the blaze started when the family's cow knocked over a lighted lantern. However, Catherine O'Leary denied this charge, and the true cause of the fire has never been determined. It was known that the fire quickly grew out of control and moved rapidly north and east towards the city center. The fire burned wildly through the following days, finally coming under control on October 10th, when rain gave a needed boost to firefighting efforts. The Great Chicago Fire left an estimated 300 people dead, and 100,000 others homeless. More than 17,000 structures were destroyed, and damages were estimated at $200 million. The disaster prompted an outbreak of looting and lawlessness. Companies of soldiers were summoned to Chicago, and martial law was declared on October 11th, ending three days of whatever you want to call that. Martial law was lifted several weeks after um, <laughs> so the aftermath, the month after the fire, Joseph Metal was elected mayor after promising to institute stricter building and fire codes, the president may have helped him win the office. His victory might also be attributable to the fact that the city's voting records were destroyed in the fire, so it was next to impossible to keep people from voting more than once. Despite the devastation, much of Chicago's physical infrastructure, including its transportation systems, remained intact. Reconstruction efforts began quickly and spurred great economic development and population growth as architects laid the foundation for a modern city featuring the world's first skyscrapers. At the time of the fire, Chicago's population was approximately 324,000, Within nine years, however, there were some 500,000 Chicagoans. Um, Wow. (laughs) Today, the Chicago Fire Department's Training Academy is located on the site of the O'Leary property where the Great Chicago Fire was said to have started. In 1997, the Chicago City Council passed a resolution exonerating Catherine O'Leary 
an Irish immigrant who died in 1895, and her cow, which, her being Irish, I assume added to the Irish uh, sentiment of the time. So the Great Conflagration. Besides the fact that the fire started around 9 o'clock on Sunday evening, October 8th, 1871, somewhere in or very near the O'Leary Barn, the exact particulars of its origin are unknown. But given the dry summer and the heedless way the city had been built and managed in regard to its vulnerability to fire, a kick from a cow would have been sufficient, but by no means necessary to burn Chicago down. As A.T. Andreas, the city's leading 19th century historian, put it, nature had withheld her accustomed measure of prevention, and man had added to the peril by recklessness. So, after I'm done with this, but before reading the O'Leary legend, I'll uh, talk about non-con, um, plywood and uh, lumber, because that's... Something I know a little about. Um, Fires were a common occurrence in Chicago, and there were several in the week before the fire. The largest of these by far began on Saturday night, and firemen might have been able to contain the great conflagration that began the following evening, but for a series of technological and human failures in the alarm system, the fire driven by a strong gust out of the southwest took dead aim on the center of the city, It divided unpredictably into separate parts by hurling out flaming brands on the superheated draft that it had generated, leaping the south branch of the Chicago River. Dividing yet again, it made short work of Conley's patch. By 1.30, it reached the courthouse tower, from which the watchmen barely escaped. When city officials realized that the building was doomed, they released the prisoners from the basement jail just before the great courthouse bell, which had been sounding the alarm, plummeted through the collapsing tower. Holy shit. As thousands flew or fled to the North Division, the fire pursued them. By 3.30, the roof collapsed on the pumping station at Chicago Avenue, effectively rendering any firefighting efforts hopeless. By noon on Monday, the North Division fires had reached North Avenue and then continued the better part of a mile to Fullerton Avenue. Back in the South Division, the luxurious new Palmer House gave way, along with the offices of the Chicago Tribune, whose editors had extorted the Common Council to raise the level of fire protection or face disaster. Tuesday morning, a rain began to fall, and the flames finally died out, leaving Chicago a smoking, steaming ruin. As the fire expanded and advanced, the mood of the population shifted from interest and concern to alarm and panic. Many heard the great courthouse bell and saw the red and amber flames in the distance, but thought little of what they believed was a commonplace but containable hazard. Individuals who worked in downtown buildings that were supposed to be, quote, fireproof, like the one that housed the Tribune, and people understandably attracted by the spectacle, walked to positions from which they could monitor the fire's progress. Before long, however, they realized that the fire was no, that where they were was no place of guaranteed safety. Fascinated as well as fearful, people uh, tried to get to the best vantage and flee for their lives with what little they could salvage. 
creating havoc in the streets and wild crowding on the bridges crossing the river. Husbands and wives, parents and children were separated. It seems as if the ground itself was on fire, which in fact it was since the streets, sidewalks, and bridges were made of wood. Really? What were they... Were they also made of creosote, or were they using creosote in the wood? Even the river seemed vulnerable, as several vessels and grease along the water's surface ignited. Not God. So it's like, have you ever seen those pictures or footage from the California wildfires of, like, the people driving along the highway, and there's, like, just everything's burning at night? Oh, my God. I can only imagine that. Later, there were reports of Chicagoans trapped or crushed in their homes on one of the bridges or in the Washington and LaSalle street tunnels, the latter of which had just opened on Independence Day. Along with the stories of narrow escapes, heroic rescues, and selfless mutual assistance, there were also tales of looting and drunkenness, as well as of outrageous demands and outright thievery by those who had been hired to cart goods to safety. Quote, pay as you go had become the watchword of the hour. Never was there a community so hastily and completely emancipated from the evils of the credit system. The burned out gathered in dazed and dispirited groups on open stretches of prairie west and northwest of the city, in the south division along Lake Michigan and the north division's Lincoln Park and along the Sands, a patch of lake shore just north of the main branch of the river. In such places of refuge, Chicagoans who uh, had little contact with each other were unceremoniously forced together. As a fire history put it, one could find, quote, Mr. McCormick, the millionaire of the reaper trade, and other north side nabobs hurting promiscuously with the humblest laborer, the lowest vagabond, and the meanest uh, harlot. Uh, yeah. That's pretty crazy. Um, wow. Um, so, okay, so non-com. Uh, this is just my two cents. So, uh, you know, once again, this is not legal advice. It's just my own understanding of what it does. So non-com stands for non-combustible. Um, it's a type of plywood. Um, I think it comes in quarter inch, but there's also half inch, five eighths, and three quarter. Um, there's also two by four, two by six, two by eight, two by 10, two by 12. Um, I believe eights, twelves, and 16 foot. Uh, I keep wanting to call it treated, but it's non-com treated. It is not exterior rated treated. It's just treated with like a fire delaying combustion chemical thing. Um, so basically what non-com does is it makes the wood sweat for like I think it's rated at 20 minutes and we'll have a clear label on the plywood. And, you know, it's always like this weird orangey red, um, for when you need it. 
and it it is very prone to cupping and twisting and cracking because I don't believe that they stick it in a kiln to dry it. It just air dries, which uh, is terrible. But, um, yeah, it's basically delayed ignition. And you'll find it very common in, at least for code-wise, it's like any electrical... Like, let's say there's an electrical panel. It's probably right on non-com plywood. You know, if it overheats or whatever. And then it's also very common in government buildings. Or like an elevator shaft or blah, blah, blah. Um, so, back to the Great Chicago Fire. Uh, shortly after the fire, uh, Stephen L. Robinson, a North Division resident whose home was not burned, set out to take a look for himself through his part of the city, marking what was still standing by annotating a map he carried with him. Among the few scattered surviving structures he encountered were the mansion of Mallon Ogden uh, and the much more modest home on Hudson Street of police officer Richard Bellinger. Both structures were saved by a combination of wetting them down and good luck. Had Robinson made it to the South Division, he would have seen the Lynn Block standing a forlorn watch over the downtown. Had he then crossed the Randolph Street Bridge of the West Division, turned left on Jefferson Street and paced another mile to DeCoven Street, he would have found the O'Leary Cottage safe and sound in front of the ashes of the barn. The so-called Burnt District, a map of which appeared in virtually every account of the fire, encompassed an area four miles long and an average of three-quarters of a mile wide including over 28 miles of street, 120 miles of sidewalks, and over 2,000 lampposts, along with countless trees, shrubs, and flowering plants in a place that like to call itself the Garden City of the West. Gone were some 18,000 buildings and $200 million in property, about a third of the valuation of the entire city. Around half of this was insured, but the failure of numerous companies cut the actual payments in half again, uh, 100,000 Chicagoans lost their homes, an uncounted number their places of work. The North Division was the hardest hit uh, by Colbert and Chamberlain's count. 13,300 of 13,800 buildings in this portion of the city were destroyed, leaving almost 75,000 people homeless. Virtually the entire German community in the North Division was burned out. My countrymen. The fire also destroyed, well, my half-countrymen, because I'm half-German. <laughs> uh, the fire also destroyed the genteel neighborhood of the old settlers. Gone was I.N. Arnold's art collection, library, and Lincoln memorabilia. Uh, gone were also his lilacs, elms, barns, and greenhouse. William Ogden lost the to the bosom of destruction not only his chicago home and businesses but also his vast lumber holdings in wisconsin which fell before the great fire in Peshtigo near green bay the same night uh, wow so now we end on the legend of the cow the o'leary legend uh, this is from a popular song lyric. 
Late one night, when we were all in bed, Miss O'Leary lit a lantern in the shed. Her cow kicked it over, then winked her eye and said, there will be a hot time in the old town tonight. You know, Miss O'Leary's cow start the Great Chicago Fire? It's possible. The conflagration almost surely began in the vicinity of the crowded barn where O'Leary kept the five cows she milked twice a day in order to help support the five O'Leary children. She also owned a horse that pulled the wagon as well as a calf. She and her husband Patrick had just laid up plenty of coal, wood shavings, and hay for the winter and to feed the flames when the barn took fire. There's a rumor that Kate admitted to different people right after the blaze began that she was in the barn when one of her cows kicked over a lantern. A few curiosity seekers claimed to find the broken pieces of such a lantern while snooping behind her cottage, whose escape from destruction was one of the ironies of the disaster and probably helped fuel uh, suspicion. <laughs> but there are plenty of reasons to think her and her cow are innocent. O'Leary offered sworn testimony that she was in bed when the fire started, and the official inquiry concluded that it found no proof of her guilt. Those who heard her, quote, confess presented conflicting versions of why she said she was in the barn. person who years later claimed that as a boy he found the broken lamp under some floorboards and took it home never explained how. If the barn had floorboards, they made it through the inferno. As for the lamp itself, he said that he couldn't produce it because an Irish servant, as part of a cover-up, bar, quote, borrowed it and then disappeared. Um, on top of this, the 40th anniversary of the Great Conflagration, a reporter named Michael Ahern, who was working with the Chicago Republican at the time of the fire, Boasted in the Tribune that he and now two deceased cronies made the whole thing up. The O'Learys lived in the rear part of the cottage, renting the front to a family named McLaughlin, who were hosting a party that evening. Ahern opined that one of the revelers went out to get milk and ended up burning Chicago down. To make the mystery murkier, the invention of the cow story has also been attributed to others, and after Ahern's Revelation appeared a longtime colleague stating that he had ghostwritten the Tribune story under Ahern's byline. As for Ahern himself, the other reporter confided, quote, the booze got him many years ago and he has not been able to do any newspaper work. Several additional theories surfaced at the time of the fire and since some boys were sneaking a smoke or gambling in the barn, spontaneous combustion, a meteor split into pieces as it fell to earth on October 8th, setting off these simultaneous catastrophic fires in Chicago and Peshtigo, Wisconsin. Richard F. Bills, writing in the Great Chicago Fire and Myth of O'Leary's Cow, contends that an O'Leary neighbor named Daniel Sullivan accidentally sparked the blaze. And... He bases his argument on an exhaustive review of property records and the post-fire inquiry. Uh, da, 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 da. It just is that this story is above all others. The one quote fact that almost everyone near and far recalls about the great fire. Mm.
So, um, well, I better read that part. Um, the O'Leary story has had such appeal because it offers a clear and specific cause for the enormous and complex event, an imaginative hurdle handle by which people can take hold of it. Regardless of the inconclusiveness of the official investigation, at the time of the fire, the O'Leary story enabled people to blame someone in particular for what was a matter of collective responsibility and misfortune. In this respect, it is noteworthy that the singling out of uh, O'Leary found brief competition with the rumor that the fire was set by an unnamed member of a worldwide blank organization with direct ties to the 1870 Paris Commune. A local paper even published his, quote, confession, and a poem that appeared in the New York Evening Post asked, Did out of ashes, Paris's ashes arise this bird with a flaming crest that over the ocean unhindered flies with a scourge for the Queen of the West? Hmm. But O'Leary offered a far better scapegoat. While she herself may or may not have been at fault, what she represented was a more acceptable cause for the fire than the communard. Unlike him, he was or she was a familiar and recognizable type who could readily be made to stand for careless building, sloppy conduct, and a shiftless immigrant underclass. Blaming her adapted existing anti-Catholic, anti-immigrant, and possibly anti-female sentiments to the terrible calamity, I think it's also the Irish part, at hand in a way that was oddly comforting. As a poor, clumsy Irish woman and not a sworn enemy of the social order, she was a disempowered comic stereotype, and the damage she caused, massive as it was, could be reassuringly categorized as the result of an accident, not a conspiracy. Um, so, Miss O'Leary, um, unfortunately, uh, passed away. She bemoaned her own losses by the fire, which included all the animals in the barn except the calf, but otherwise she tried to avoid the unwanted attention, including offers from promoters who promised her money for public appearances. She and her family lived in a series of homes around 50th and Halstead, where journalists would seek her out for interviews in early October. She would ignore them or chase them away, and they in turn would make up stories that revived the old stereotypes. in 1886, for example, a Daily News reporter, whom she supposedly rebuffed, described her home as follows, quote, The house has no front door in lieu of glass clothing. It's stuffed into two or three windows. And long before a stranger reaches the places is the pungent odor of distillery swill and the effluvium of cows proclaim that old habits are strong with Miss O'Leary and that she is still in the milk business. Patrick O'Leary died in September of 1894, and Miss O'Leary passed away the following 4th of July. Hmm. Who knows? Um, I don't think it was her or her cow. I think it was a very complicated event, and we just wanted to 
blame one thing in particular. This has been your host, Luke. Uh, thanks for listening. Um, I'm trying to pump two out a week when I can. <laughs> this heat is killing me, man. Ugh. Yeah. But anyways, thank you, and uh, have a good night. Peace out.